All right. Let's jump right in. I have got a lot that I want to get through today, and I'm not going to push it. If, if, if we we're hitting up against time, I'll, I'll cut it short and pick it up next week. But we've been in this series called The Alternate Reality, and we're just examining of how we look at the world. I've told you guys this before. You've heard me say it multiple times through the years, is that everybody has a worldview, but not every worldview is a good one. No matter where you were, where you're from, what you grew up with, that all affects the way you see the world today. And so everybody has one, but it doesn't mean that every worldview is based in reality. And so as we look at the definition of the word reality, it's the world or the state of things as they actually exist, as opposed to an idealistic or notional idea of them. You see, we've been examining this reality that we are in Christ. That's key. Who we are in Christ, what that means. Examining the question of who God is and who we are in relationship to Him and how we worship Him and who our enemy is and all of these different aspects. As we've gone through life, we're beginning to look at this. It's like, okay, if I'm to be like Christ, to do what He did, I should walk like He walked. We've seen that. We've read that. We've examined that. But the question comes down to is that how I respond truly dictates what I believe, what I believe in life. You see, in John chapter 17, verse 13, it says, But now I come to you in these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word. The world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified, and things like that. And I said, I've got to ask you a question. I said, and I said, so please don't take this the wrong way. I just, I have to ask. There's a distinction there. We are in a world that we are not a part of. We are here, but we're not from this world. Jesus wasn't from this world. He says, just like I am not, they are not. Just like they hated me, they being the world, you will be hated because they hated me first. Do you see all of these things that are coming on? There's a separation between a born-again believer and then the rest of the world. Who is the God of this world? Don't say Yahweh. It's not him. It talks about that in scripture, but for some reason, we don't walk in that reality. We, we kind of think that God is just in control of every detail, of every aspect. Well, if that's true, he's not doing a great job. I mean, us Nebraska football fans can attest to that, right? You brought in what we thought was the Messiah, and he was a disaster. So they fired him and paid him a lot of money to go away. I'm telling you what, great retirement plan, become a fired D1 coach. It's the way to go. Anyway, but when we look at this, we're like, okay, well, what is going on here? We have to look at everything through the lenses of Scripture. Christ laid out that you and I are a part of something. We are sojourners in a land of which we are not from. And there's a distinction there. But yet, it seems, according to Scripture, that we have a responsibility an ability on this earth to do certain things. And what is that based on? Well, let's look at Luke chapter 22. We're familiar with this. In fact, we just took communion. This is a passage that communion comes from. It says, what, verse 14, Luke 22, when the hour had come, he sat down and the 12 apostles with him, and he said to them, with fervent desire, I have a desire to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Now stop. He says, with fervent desire. That means he's really been anticipating this moment. But yet, how many Passovers had he eaten with his disciples? Probably two more, right? They're about, been with them about three years. We're, we're speculating there. So what was so unique about this one? What separated this one? 
What made this so special to him that he said, with fervent desire, I've desired? Well, let's go on. Then he took the cup and he gave thanks and, and said, take this and where the Shekinah glorious. This was considered his footstool. Okay? I don't know how you get your feet back there. He took the bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and he gave it to them. He said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of the fruit of what they were doing. And it's in 2 Chronicles chapter 26, and we're dealing with King Uzziah. Now using, if you will, this new covenant. The breaking of his body, the shedding of his blood. This is the Passover lamb being sacrificed. There's all this imagery that's going on there. And this is where the beginning of this new covenant comes in. This is a fellowship meal, a peace. Because without the word of God, we don't without God. Without behalf. In Romans chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Having peace with God was a new concept. Mankind did not have peace with God. As soon as Adam was kicked out of the garden, the peace was gone. They constantly had to do things to appease and take care of their sin, the atonement aspect, the sacrifices. There was never a moment that they could rest in full assurance saying, yep, man, I'm right with God. Nobody. If somebody tried, what happened? They did. Thanks for playing, Jim Clean. They'd have to go through a ritual. Every time they sinned in some way, they'd have to go through a ritual. And every single year, the high priest would have to make atonement for the nation of Israel. On the Day of Atonement. So we see here that we have peace with God and we have access, again, something new. Something that your average Joe did not have before this moment. But now, Paul's talking to the church in Rome, which was a lot of people, to be read by all believers after that. That means we all have the exact same thing. Well, what caused that? What happened here? In 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 34, it says, But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep his father's sheep, and when a lion or a bear came and took the lamb from the flock, I went out after it and struck it, delivered the lamb from its mouth. And when it arose against me, I caught it by its beard and struck and killed it. And your servant has killed both the lion and bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing he's defied the armies of the living God. Moreover, David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. Did he seem nervous? Did he like, I'm not sure what will happen, but I'm going to give it a go. That's not what he said. Why is he so confident? Well, let's look at Daniel chapter 3, verse 16. You know, the, so in this place where this was is the only person, the only person that could go in. Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this, that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. Did they seem confused? Were they not sure how God was going to respond? No, they knew what God was going to do. The argument wasn't if what God was going to do. The argument was what Nebuchadnezzar was going to do. If you throw us in, God will save us. If you choose not to, just know we will never bow our knee. That's pretty confident. I don't know if you know this, but some of you that have been coming in, in, on Wednesday night with Daniel, that Nebuchadnezzar, not a calm guy. He's not okay with people second-guessing what he has to say. But that was bold. They were confident. Why? It all comes back to the covenant. You see, the covenant they had, they were inside of the Mosaic covenant, the old covenant. They were so confident in how God was going to respond that a young man was willing to stand in front of a giant 
And three young men were willing to question Nebuchadnezzar because what was the consequence of not falling before the giant, or not the giant, but the, the, the statue? I'll kill you all, and then I'll make your house a dung heap. Not a good ending. Yet these three young guys had no problem. Why? In Psalm chapter 89, verse 34, it says, My covenant I will not break, nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips. Who said that? God said that. You see, they're confident in the covenant, in the promises of God. They're underneath the Mosaic covenant. Now, we've gone through this. There's a list of the covenants here. You got the Adamic, the Noach, the Abrahamic, Mosaic, Davidic, and then the New. Now, there are more. There are others. The Adamic is split into two if you want to be right. But... We're looking at this, and we began to examine, okay, these covenants, or we could call them contracts, that's the language that we speak in, but then we've been preaching the kingdom of God. There's a lot that goes into that. And so as we began to God with mankind, and there is a distinction there, because the Adamic covenant, the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant were all made by promises with God. God said to Noah, I'm never going to flood the earth again. That's my promise. Noah never went around after that. I was like, maybe I should hang on to this ark just in case. Just a little backup plan. No. We never have to worry that God is going to destroy the earth with water again. Why? My covenant I will not break, nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips. He promised that to Noah. What did Noah have to do to keep it? Nothing. Nothing. It was a promise to him, and he gave him a sign to sign the rainbow. Every time you see it, it will remind you of that covenant. The Abrahamic covenant, hey, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. I'm going to give your people a land. When they come out of Egypt, they're going to walk into this land. It's their land. I'm giving it to them. What do they have to do? Go to the land. What do they not do? Go to the land. But the land still belonged to them because God had promised. They weren't obedient, but God had promised. And so that thing there, Abraham had to do absolutely nothing. It wasn't a matter of sacrifices that he made. It wasn't a matter of scripture that he memorized. It wasn't a matter of how his church attendance was going. It didn't matter how much money he gave. None of that had anything to do with it. God promised Abraham. God is faithful. But the Mosaic Covenant is the one that's distinct. God, however, it was written by man. And therefore, there are some things in it that are probably each. You know the one that we always scroll through and we don't read? And we click, I accept which gives them right to like spy on us and do whatever else and probably the right to our firstborn child if they want them. I don't know. But there was these terms applied. And he says, if you keep my commandments, you will be blessed. If God says, if you just simply do this, you'll be blessed, that's generally a thing that sounds good. He said, if you don't, you will be cursed. That would be bad. So the keeping is the good. The not keeping, that's the bad. Do you accept these terms nation of Israel. Moses reads them in front of them. He says, everything he said, we will do. That was the first lie. That was a joke. Try to keep up. <laughs> so the thing is here is that as he did this, it was like, okay, they cut the blood. He sprinkled the book. He sprinkled the people. Sprinkled the, the, all the other stuff that was going on there. The covenant's now in place. How long did it take them to break that covenant? 4.6 seconds. Moses on the mountain. Aaron's like, hey, let's build a statue. This is the God. Broke the Ten Commandments. They made more. You know the story. That one was conditional. And it talks time about the condition, the, the covenant that, that they broke. Though I was a husband to them, they were not faithful to me. You see, that one was breakable. But when we get into the New Testament, we don't worry about the Old Covenant. The reason we don't worry about it 
is because we're not under that covenant. Number one, we're not an Israelite. That's, that's first and foremost. But number two, Jesus has set up a better covenant. Let's look at this in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1. Now, this is the main point of the things that we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected, and not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifice. Therefore, it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. For if he were on the earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who are offered gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown to you on the mountain. But now he, who's he? Jesus is he has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is the mediator of a better covenant which is established on better promises. Which is the question that I began to ask many, many years ago. If it's better, what makes it better? If it's established on better promises, what are those promises and how are they distinct? You see, is if you will begin to understand the different covenants, because that's the language God speaks in. You will clear up so much mud in your reading of Scripture. I mean, we're talking a little bit this morning because we love to have these in-depth conversations. Calvinism versus Arminianism and stuff. It was very low-level conversation. We didn't really go that deep. But it's like, where do these different ideas come from? Most of them can simply be done away with if you just begin to understand the greater context of the Scripture as a whole. And that is that it is written in covenants. They're everywhere. Every time Abraham acted in something, he acted inside of a covenant. Every time the people of Israel acted in something, they acted inside the confines of a covenant and the consequences that come with that. It's like it's your bill of rights. Whatever is in there, you are entitled to. So whenever the Israelites were keeping God's commandments, what were they entitled to? Blessing, peace, none of the other bad stuff. Just as the same is that when they didn't do that, what were they entitled to? All the bad stuff. That's where the book of Judges comes in. So what is this new covenant that is based on a better promise and has better things to it? Well, we have to first understand it. So I am kind of rehashing some of this from last week. It'd be good if you go back and listen to it. It is online. Jeremiah 31. This is where we get the idea of the new covenant. Verse 31, it says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Who's making the covenant? God is making the covenant. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. So, what covenant are we comparing the new one to? The Mosaic. The new one is not like that. It's different. It's distinct. But this covenant I, that I will make with the house of Israel after this, we're going to pick up where we left off last week. We've been in this series called The Alternate Reality for a little while now. And shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. So Jeremiah 31 is where we get the ideas of this new covenant. It goes into greater depth than other parts. We're not going to go into all of that today. But understand this. This new covenant was in force at the moment Christ died. That was a fellowship peace offering when they took communion. Okay? That was the Passover meal, the Seder meal. And so now he says, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. Where was it written before? 
the Ten Commandments, but there were 613 laws. They had to keep them all. Had to keep them all perfect. We don't need a book full of laws now. Why? They're written on our heart. What does Romans 1 say? That although they knew God, they did not worship Him as God. They worshiped the creation rather than the Creator. Well, how did they know God? He wrote their laws on their heart. Every person knows God. That's where you hear me say, there's, it's sad that I have to ask this question. I said, where do you fall on the authority of Scripture? With it is the Mosaic Covenant. And as we have seen in the New Testament and parts of the Old, that is a re- reference to where we're at today and what we began last week. It comes down to the priesthood. The difference here is the Old Covenant priesthood and the New Covenant priesthood. You had the priesthood that came from the line of Aaron, and in the New Covenant comes from the line of Melchizedek. And we began to break that down, and I want to go and I want to talk about this again, just briefly going through this. I promise not to keep you here too late today, but I love, like teaching through Hebrews on Wednesday night was one of my favorite things in the world. We see that it's like, okay, Christ could not be high priest under the Old Covenant because he did not come from the line. That is the Old Testament that is being compared. So let's go to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 1. I'm going to go through this fairly quickly because I talked about this in depth last week. Then indeed, even the first covenant, which one? The first one, which is what? The Mosaic. It's a reference to the Mosaic covenant. Had ordinance of divine service in the earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part, in which was the lampstand, the table, and showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And I showed you these pictures last week. Let me show them to you again. Here we go. This here is the tabernacle. It was made by hands. And I read to you all the detail of just the outer shell. It was long. It was in-depth. Make them this high. Make them this thick. Put this many rings in it. All of this stuff. But essentially, you have the outer court. You see the high priest here. This is what he would wear pretty much every day, except on the Day of Atonement. There he would change. We'll get into that later. And then you've got the inner court. Or excuse me, not the inner court. The holy place and the most holy place. Let's go to the next one. So this is the layout. You would come in here through the eastern gate. You would walk up here. You would bring your sacrifice with you. There would be a bunch of priests there. Who were the priests? The Levites. So if you were born of the Levite tribe, you were qualified as a priest. You could do all of the stuff here and all of the stuff here. As a matter of fact, uh, Raleigh Morris, who is our Jewish missionary that we support, who's over in Israel, who did get his citizenship here just recently, just so you know, um, He is of the tribe of Levi. His his Hebrew name is David Halevi, just so you know. So David Halevi. So he could be the guy out here slitting the throats of the cute little baby lambs. Wouldn't that be fun? So they would bring in their their offering, and the priests would meet them there, and they would lay their hands upon it, and they would recite a prayer of some sort. They would sacrifice to here. Then the priests would take the blood, and they would wash their hands and all of that in here, and then they would enter into here. Now, any priest could go in here, but not any person could. Any Levite who is serving in this ministry capacity absolutely could. You have the table of showbread, the menorah, and the altar of incense. And then there was a separation that was right there. This was the veil. It said it was the width of a man's hand. It was very thick. That is the veil that was torn when Christ died because the separation between man and God is no longer there. And then that high priest would enter in here one day a year bringing the blood after he'd already sacrificed for himself, and he would sprinkle it upon the altar, bringing the incense with him as well. This is where the Shekinah glory was, the presence of God. And if he didn't do every step correctly, he would die. So it was perfect. You had to get it right. Let's go on, verse 3. And behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the Holy of all, 
which the golden uh, censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had manna, Aaron's rod had budded, and the tablets of the covenant, and uh, above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of those things we cannot speak in now in detail. So let's, again, look at these pictures here real quick. Just going to go through them very quickly. So we told you that we're talking about this part where this guy can only go in. Go to the next one. Again, same thing. Go to the next one. There we go. This is the Ark of the Covenant. This is what Raiders of the Lost Ark just recently won. The 12, but it's not just a reference to the 12. Because remember, Jesus had hundreds of thousands of disciples. He inside of there, they kept the Ten Commandments, the budded staff of, of Aaron, and then the uh, jar of manna. Now, this whole thing here, you have the cherubim, which were the angels. They were the uh, guardians of the throne. And then you had this was called the mercy seat, which was the lid. This was the throne of God. So God's domain was where? In here. Later became the temple. Where was it then? Same spot, just in the temple. A little more ornate, a little bit more detail. Let's go on. Verse 6. Now when these things had been thus prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle, that's the holy place, performing the services. But into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for people's sin committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience, concerned only with food and drinks, various washings and fleshly ordinance imposed until the time of the Reformation. So this is a very Jewish thing that is talking about. About here but essentially if you look at these photos again when the high priest come in only he could come in there but he had to come with blood he couldn't just walk in anytime that he wanted go to the next one so this is the high priest this is what he would wear you had the two goliath was an enemy of god nebuchadnezzar enemy of god he can bring nothing they would tie a, a red string a crimson rope around it it would turn white all this other stuff don't worry about that here he would enter up in one day a year, he's standing before the veil, the altar of incense would normally. Now, this would be in the temple, not the tabernacle. Again, finding enough photos to show you guys this. I'm very visual. This is why I do this. This is for my benefit as much as it is yours. He would take that incense. There is believed to have been no door or opening there, but God would supernaturally open it in a way that he could enter in. And he would go in there, and he would bring the blood, and he would burn the incense. And this is what atoned for the nation of Israel for one more year. But every other sacrifice still had to be made. The burnt offerings, the thanksgiving, all of those, the peace offerings still had to be made. But one day a year, the high priest would first sacrifice for himself, making himself right. Then he would, the nation of Israel, everything they did surrounded both figuratively and literally because they camped around. The glory was where the throne of God is. And what happens if he got something wrong? He died. So if he died, that means there was no atonement. So they didn't bring in high priest B to pick up the slack. They would have to inaugurate a new high priest. And for one year, the nation of Israel was not atoned for because you didn't get a do-over. It had to be perfect. Every detail had to be perfect. How many of y'all loving the new covenant right now? But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and we'll try. Verse 11, but Christ came as high priest of the good things to come. With the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands. That is not of this creation. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if 
the blood with this, but understand this. He had to get every detail correct. And if he didn't, the sins of the nations could not be atoned flesh. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgression under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Now, what we just read is that Christ entered the holiest of all, not the one made with hands, but the one in heaven. He took his blood in there, and now everything is atoned for. And we see in other places where he sat down at the right hand of the Father. And I told you last week, that is interesting because there were no chairs inside of the tabernacle, inside of the temple. The priesthood had to constantly be working. There was no rest for the weary because the work how always needed to be done. But now we have Jesus as our high priest. The work is completed. It has now been done for all of time. There is no more need for sacrifice. It's been taken care of. Why? Because the new covenant has been inaugurated. But here's the problem. It says that if the blood of bulls and goats was enough, there would have been no need for Christ, but yet he had to come. Well, here's the problem. How could he? We See, this is the question we're going to examine today. Because what we know of Jesus and what we know of the high priest is that there was a high priesthood. And how did you get there? We'll get into this later. You had to be from the line of Aaron. Was Jesus from the line of Aaron? No. So could he be the high priest? No. This is where the Melchizedek thing comes in. We'll talk about this more in a minute. But if that's the case and God always keeps his word, how does he just flip-flop and say, okay, you don't have to do Aaron anymore? We're going to go after this Melchizedek guy. Because God does everything by legal checks and balances. Everything. He doesn't just wake up one day and like, yeah, that Aaron thing was fun. Let's go this side now. That's not what happened. So let's begin to get into this. Now, the first thing that we have to know is what was this old priesthood? This is where the new information is coming in. I promise I have a lot to go through, but I'm not going to rush through this because I want you to get it. So we'll start in Numbers chapter 18. Verse 1, there are other passages you can look at that talks about this priesthood, but this is it's, uh, just one that kind of lays it out there simply if you have a basic understanding. It says, Then the Lord said to Aaron, You and your sons and your father's house with you shall bear the iniquity related to the sanctuary. With you and your sons with you shall bear the iniquity associated with your priesthood. So now, when it says sanctuary, it is a reference to the, holy, the most holy place. You and your sons shall bear the iniquity and furious. He had a censer in his hand to burn incense. And while he was angry with the, the tribe of Levi, the tribe of your father, that they may be joined with you and serve you while you and your sons are with you before the tabernacle of witness, they shall attend to your needs and all the needs of the tabernacle. And they shall not come near the articles of the sanctuary and the altar, lest they die, they and you also. So there's the keep out sign from the holiest of holies. They shall be joined with you and attend to the, to the needs of the tabernacle of meeting for all the work of the tabernacle. But an outsider shall not come near you. So it has to be of the Levite tribe. And you shall attend to the duties of the sanctuary and the duties of the altar, that there may be no more wrath on the children of Israel. This is the atoning for the year. Behold, I myself have taken your brethren, 
the Levites from among the children of Israel. They are a gift to you, given by the Lord to do the work of the tabernacle of meeting. Therefore, you and your sons with you shall attend your priesthood for everything at the altar and behind the veil, and you shall serve. I give your priesthood to you as a gift for service, but the outsider who comes near shall be put to death. Now, for time's sake, I'm giving you a lot more detail than what's given here. But the bottom line is, is that you were a Levite, you were qualified to be a priest. But there was no vote taken. And so to be the high priest, you had to be of the lineage of Aaron. So if you were a Levite, but you weren't from the line of Aaron, forget about it. You're never going to get high priest. It's just not going to happen. Only God decided who would become high priest. But Jesus, it's gotten worse than that. We've turned communion and baptism in the Isaiah covenant. You guys with me so far? We see in Psalm 110 verse 4 that says, The Lord has sworn and will not relent that you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. This is the first time that we see this idea laid out. We see Melchizedek earlier, but this is the first time the reference to Messiah is a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And the book of Hebrew expands the idea of the great high priest. Now, the reason we're going in this in detail is the fact that you'll hear people say this, but I don't think we really understand what all that entails and what that means. So in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, it says, Seeing then that we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens, is what? In order to get to the Father, you must pass through, sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help and in a time of need. So Jesus, our high priest, we know he's after the order of Melchizedek. Where is he? Our high priest is in heaven. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. Every other high priest, including Aaron, could enter into the presence of God, but he couldn't stay there. He would have to leave. So Jesus is in a better position. He sympathizes with us. He was tempted in every way, just like us, just like the other high priests were. The difference was, is he did it without sin. But because he is now this mediator of the covenant, now we have peace with God, we can boldly enter into the throne. We have to leave the throne room. No. Because the veil is separated. That separated man from God is no more. So we get into this idea that we have, if we enter into this covenant, we have access to God for the first time ever. That's never happened before. It says, for every high priest is taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. Because of this, he is required as for the people, so also for himself to offer sacrifices for sin. And no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. So there are prerequisites. What's the first one? He had to be a man, right? Pretty cut and dry. He had to be a man. So he couldn't be a dog. He had to be a man. Then he had to function in some type of priestly order. So in other words, he talks about the work that he'd done. He had to be of the line of Levi, 
because that's where Aaron came from. But he had to be a priest, but he didn't make him a high priest. In other words, there were people of the line of Aaron who were simply priests, but not the high priest. The other part is, is he had to be compassionate. Why was he compassionate? Because he was going through the same stuff. So he had so much more vibrant than what we realize. And the beautiful part is, there's no sacrifice that we made. But he had to be compassionate, just like our high priest. But the last part's the key. There was no vote who was going to be high priest when one died or one was retiring, because that would happen too. There was no getting together and they would take paper ballots and then everybody's standing outside waiting for the smoke to rise up out of the stack. Is it black smoke? Is it white smoke? None of that happened. How did you become high priest? Well, you first had to be of the line of Aaron. You had to be a man, obviously. You were, of course, one of the priests, and you would have this compassion, but the truth was is that God chose you. That's the key. You were chosen by God. The Philistines. Were the Philistines the good guys? No. Where is Gath? Gath is where David fled to, and Gath... Oh, don't think that that didn't happen, as you're going to see in the New Testament when we get to this part. That's exactly what was going on there. But to be the chosen one by God, you couldn't elevate yourself to that position. God puts you in that position. So, let's go to Hebrews chapter 5, verse 5. So also, Christ did not glorify himself to be high priest. Okay? But it is he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. What does that mean? Set you apart, chosen you. Also, he says in another place, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, who in the days of his flesh, when he offered up prayers and supplication with vehement cries and tears to him, who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him, the priest and those of the Levites who serve. They may go in, for they are holy. But all the people, that's important. But here, as the writer is pointing out, there are four things to be true Messiah, okay? The first part is he was divinely appointed. He was chosen by God. The second part, of course, he had to be human. Christ came to the earth fully human. He wasn't here as the Son of God walking around with all his Son of God powers. When did the power come? After he's baptized in the Spirit. When the Holy Spirit came upon him, the miracles began to happen. Thirdly, he had to be compassionate. And fourthly, he functioned in a priestly order. It's just not the one that we would account for. You see, when you think about it, the reason the writers of Hebrews, who I happen to believe was Paul, but because he wrote this, he's writing it to a Jewish people so that they can understand and they would have this background and trying to comprehend this whole Melchizedekian thing would be throwing them off. So here's the question. Who is Melchizedek? If Jesus came from this lineage, meeting all the criteria necessary, we should know who this man was. Now, there's a lot of debate in this part, okay? There's a lot of debate about who Melchizedek was, and that is because there are some people who believe that he might have been a pre-incarnate Christ, a Christophany, if you will, that this was really Jesus, okay? I don't hold that view. I believe that he was a man because he was a leper. And he was cut off from the house of the Lord. Then Jotham, his son, was over the king's house, judging the... A minute. 
Let's go to Hebrews chapter 7. Gives us a little bit of detail. Verse 1, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteous people of the land. Now, when it talks about he was separated, he dwelt in an isolated house, he was the king, he was on top, having neither beginning or days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. To go after the king. What happens when you go against the king? It's the whole off with his hands. Those of you that were there, I've showed you guys the idea of a ramez, is that where some things are left out and we dig into it a little deeper, that the Holy Spirit intentionally leaves things out. If Melchizedek was simply a man that God set up as a high priest, did he have a father? Yeah. Did he have a mother? You bet. Did he have beginning of days? Sure. Did he have end of life? Of course he did. But yet it was deliberately left out by the Holy Spirit. So when we get into this, we're going to see here a little bit more in detail that he was this priest set apart by God. This also predates the Mosaic Covenant. It was not in play here, which means the Aaronic priesthood did not exist yet. Neither did Aaron. Let's go to Genesis chapter 14. And it came to pass in the days of Amphrophel king of Shinar, Aria, king of Elisar, Shalimar, king of Elam, and all these other kings that started this war, and I'm going to skip down and not butcher every single one of these names, okay, for y'all's benefit. Let's go down to verse 8. And the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, and the king of Admah, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Belem. So we see Uzziah to burn incense to the Lord. But for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn more and all the other tribes that were there and the, the cities that were there. Okay? But we see what's happening. Jump to verse 11. Then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom and his goods and departed. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew. For he dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eschol, and the brother of Aner. And they were allies with Abram. Now when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his own house and went and pursued as far as Dan. He divided his forces against them by night, and he and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobah which is north of Damascus. So he brought back all the goods. He also brought back his brother Lot and his goods as well as the women and the people. So he went after them and he got them. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva. This is the king's valley. After the return from the defeat of Shedrolamar and the kings who were with him. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High. This is the first time we're introduced to him. He was priest of the God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tithe of all. Who's he? Abram. Now the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the person and take your goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord God Most High, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap, and that I will take, not take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich, except only that the young men have eaten, and the portion of men who went to, with me, Aner, Eskel, and Mamre, let them take those fame spread far and wide 
for he was marvelously helped till he became strong. So, the thing to shoot on Melchizedek. There is not much more out there, which leaves a lot of confusion. So let's go to Hebrews chapter 7 again, verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, does that line up with what we just read? Yep. Was he a priest of the Most High God? Yep, we just read that. Who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, without father, mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. When did the Melchizedek rules? They chose to keep them or not keep them, just like you and I. Now, the thing is here, they did Melchizedek wake up one day and say, I am the priest of the Most High God. There was no priesthood because God showed him. We don't know the details of how that happened. We don't know the details of his life. We don't know how long he had been acting. What we do know is Abram's response to him when he came. He brought out what? Bread and wine. Isn't that interesting? Kind of like a piecemeal, if you will. And Abram did what? Paid him a tenth. What do we call that? A tithe. But the tithe hasn't been instituted yet. Neither did the priesthood. All of this predates that. So there are six similarities between Melchizedek and the priest. Or Jesus, really. The first one is that Melchizedek was the priest, the high priest, the most high God. What also was he? He was a king. The second one is he issued a blessing. The third is he received tithes, just like Christ did. The fourth is he is an independent high priest, and it is not dependent upon genealogy. So who could be the guy that follows after him? Whomever God chose. Lineage didn't matter. The fifth is that it was timeless, because we don't have a record of the beginning, and we don't have a record of the end. This one predates and thus presupposes the Levitical priesthood. And the sixth one is that it was all-inclusive because who did he minister to? Was it just the Israelites? No. There were no Israelites at this point. Anybody could have come to him from anywhere and he could have made sacrifice for them in some way. The sacrifices existed at this point. You see, the Levitical priesthood only administered to Israel, but the Melchizedekian priesthood ministered to all. So we see here a description of the origin of Melchizedek, where we get the idea from. We also see that he is superior because it is not based on what bloodline you came from. It's based off of God choosing you. So, it's shown superior in verse 4 of Hebrews chapter 7. Now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoil. What else would it say? Now consider how great this what was? This man, there is never an indication anywhere through Scripture that this is a pre-incarnate Christ of any, anywhere. This is not a supernatural being of some sort. Understand that. That is something that has been interpreted into the text later. Indeed, those who are of the sons of Levi who received the priesthood have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law, that is, from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. So this is the talking about the responsibility of the Levites. But he whose genealogy unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of an unclean uh, people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen through him. First Peter chapter 2, verse 4 says, Coming to him, mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them, of whom it is witnessed that he lives. Even Levi, who receives tithes, 
pay tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Now, this is the thing that you have to see. What the writer here is instituting is an understanding of how superior this priesthood is to the one underneath the Mosaic Covenant. It's better in every way, and it's showing that even Levi paid, that the greater blesses the lesser. Levi, who was a founder here, and he was the, the, the father of that nation or that, that tribe of people, served under commandment. Melchizedek did it under blessing. It's completely different. You ever think that there was somebody of the tribe of Levi that maybe didn't want to be a priest? At least possible. Because Uzziah had no business being in there. He wasn't allowed in there. Holy is, is that, well, okay, that's fine. But was Jesus living under the old covenant? Yes. The old covenant was in force at the time of Christ. So to call him the high priest is a contradiction to Scripture according to that covenant because he doesn't meet the qualifications, right? You guys with me so far? So how did Jesus just become this great high priest? How did they get to do away with all of this and then institute this? Well, there's actually a pattern that is developed that I want to show you that I have shown before, and I'm going to preface this as saying, this is my opinion, okay? This doesn't mean I'm right. I mean, I'm always right. Right, Ethan? Where's he? Was to not just let anybody in. Even if it's the king, their job was to protect it. Now, let's look at what Isaiah The thing is, is that I'm telling you my opinion, but it is not out. I didn't just make this up. I'm going to show you why. But my opinion is, is that John the Baptist was the rightful high priest that year. And that the guys that were in power were not chosen by God. They may have met a lot of the other qualifications, but it wasn't God who chose them. So let me show you this. Matthew chapter 3, verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness. You were the equipment. So there was a lot that was going on here. Verse 11. Moreover, Uzziah had an army saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. For now John himself was clothed in camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, understand what's happening here. He was a precursor to Messiah. When they were baptized, that means they were now a disciple of whomever baptized them. They did not baptize like you and I did. We didn't like hold their nose and wear swimsuits and tip them back. They would never touch them. Under their own power and their own regard, they were now confessing to the world that I am a disciple of John by doing this. So what John is teaching, I am carrying that with me. Verse 7, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance and do not think to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children from these stones. Now let's stop for a moment. The Pharisees and Sadducees were two sects of Israel, two sects of Jewish belief. The Pharisees were your, what we would call the legalists. They kept the commandments. They believed in the law. They had created these fence laws from the time of Aaron. That's why they were so, you have to wash your hands. You have to do all this different stuff, giving Jesus such a hard time. Because they were the ones in power of the Sanhedrin. The Sadducees did not believe in the supernatural. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in any of this other stuff. And as soon as John sees them, he calls them out, tells them to bear fruits worthy of repentance. In other words, don't talk, show. 
But then he says something else that's interesting. God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. Well, what stones? Is it just abstract? I'm not going to go into this, but I'll show you this just because I think it's cool. Just Again, this is Chris's opinion. Where were they when this took place? They're at the Jordan River. What river did Joshua lead his people to, to go into the Promised Land? The Jordan River. And what did they set up? Monuments of 12 stones, some in the river, some on the outside. Is it possible that those are the stones? It's at least possible you do with that what you want. I'm not even going to charge you for that one. Here we go, verse 10. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he who is coming after me, who is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So, I mean, he's pretty intense here. He knows his role. And he knows what he's doing, and he is letting these boys have it. And I like it. Verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. Now, John knows who he is. He's the guy that he just got done talking to the Pharisees and Sadducees about. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and are you coming to me? Let me tell you something. If Jesus rolls up to you and says, hey, would you mind baptizing me? You'd be like, are you out of your ever-loving mind? No. This is in reverse. But look what he said, verse 15. Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed Isaiah says here. Verse 1 of chapter 1. It says, The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, when he heard of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him, and suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. In other words, this is my son whom I've set apart. Now, let me ask you this. Why did Jesus insist on this? Permit it to be so now that it's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Why did Jesus need to be baptized? What sin had he committed? None. None. Was he becoming a disciple of John? No. See, here's the thing. And this is getting into a little bit about Jewish history. Is that when one high priest was going out and a new one was coming in, that the new high priest, old high priest, would baptize the new high priest. They would mikvah. They would bring them down and bring them up, instituting a new priesthood. You guys following me so far? That is the pattern that is here. Why did Jesus insinuate on this, or insist upon this? Well, if John was the rightful high priest chosen by God, and Jesus is going to become our great high priest, would he follow that pattern? The answer is yes, but I'm not done. Now let's look at Luke chapter 3. But I promise I'll be done soon. Quit looking at your watch. Luke chapter 3, verse 1. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, Tetrarch of Idaria, and the region of Trachonitis, and Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene, while Annas and Caiaphas were high priests, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. Now, here's the thing. It says there are two people that are high priests. That doesn't make any sense because how many high priests were there? There was always one. So his name is identified as other uh, names throughout, but he was the high priest from about 6 to 15 AD. He was the father-in-law of Caiaphas who reigned from AD 18 to 36 and then after him Ananias 47 to 58. Now, here's the thing. What we have to understand here is that 
what happens is that this priesthood, Annas, the government didn't like this guy because they couldn't control him. So Rome removed him as high priest and put his son-in-law up there. You'll actually see that when Jesus was being taken, he went to Annas first and then Caiaphas. He went to both. So while Rome had put Caiaphas as the high priest, the people still recognized the high priest of who he was. You guys with me so far? Just so you're not confused. That's why I talked about two of them. So, okay, great. So now we know the pattern here. We see that there's a priesthood set up at the time of Christ. Okay? Luke chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 1. Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set an order of narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. Now, what is Luke doing here? He's laying this out. A lot of people have written things in order and have set a narrative that's been fulfilled among us. He's writing this down. And just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of this word that was delivered to us, it seemed good to me, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write an orderly account, laying things out in order to whoever Theophilus was, so that he could know the certainty of all the things that he is being instructed in. You guys see that so far? Verse 5, there was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinance of the Lord blameless. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well advanced in years. And so it was that while he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of the people was praying outside at the hour of incense. Now, Again, let me lay this out very quickly, okay? There were so many priests that they couldn't all serve. And so they get divided into divisions. And essentially, it says his lot fell, is the roll of the dice, if you will. You'd get chosen and you'd get a two-week span to serve. And so that's what we see here. We see that it was his turn to serve because he got called up, if you will, and so he was serving the priesthood. Well, where do we see this? We see this in 1 Chronicles chapter 24, verse 1. It says, Now these are the divisions of the sons of Aaron. And the sons of Aaron were Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. And Nadab and Abihu died before their father and had no children. Therefore, Eleazar and Ithamar ministered as spirits. Then David was Zadok, and the sons of Eleazar, and Ahimelech, and the sons of Ithamar divided them according to the schedule of their service. There were more leaders found of the sons of Eleazar than of the sons of Ithamar, and thus they were divided. Among the sons of Eleazar were sixteen heads of their father's house, and eight heads of their father's houses among the sons of Ithamar. Thus they were divided by lot, one group as another, for there were officials of the sanctuary and the officials of the house of God, and the sons of Eleazar from the sons of Ithamar. And the scribe Shemaiah, the son of Nathaniel, and one of the Levites wrote, them down before the king, the leader Zadok, the priest Ahimelech, the son Abiathar, and the heads of the father's houses of the priests and Levites, one's father's house taken from Eleazar and one of Ithamar. Now the first lot fell to Jehoram, the son of Jedidiah, and the third to Haram, the uh, fourth to Sororam, the fifth to Malchijah, the sixth to Majamin, the seventh to Hakas, and the eighth to whom? Abijah. Now who are these people? These are the sons of Aaron. Okay? Who is Abijah? The father of of John's father. 
great, 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 great grandpa here. Okay? Which means what? He's of the line of Aaron. Okay? So would he have qualified for high priest? Yeah, Zacharias would have qualified for high priest. Okay? Let's go skip the rest of the names. Jump down to verse 19. This was the schedule of their service for the coming into the house of the Lord according to the ordinance by the hand of Aaron their father as the Lord God of Israel had commanded. So these were the divisions, 24 in total, were all laid out before them. So we see that Zacharias came from the line of Aaron. Could he be a high priest? Absolutely. But what about mom? Well, it says right here, if you go back, uh, sorry to do this to you, I normally put these up. But in uh, verse 5, it says, These were in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias, of the division of Abijah, so we know where he came from. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. So technically, both bloodlines come from the line of Aaron. Thus, could Zacharias be the high priest? Absolutely. Which means what? So could John. Now, how did the high priest at that time get put in place? By Rome. But what did we see? The rightful high priest has to be chosen by God. You don't get to choose. So is it possible that John was God's chosen man for high priest? It's possible, but look at Hebrews chapter 5, verse 5. So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, you are my son, today I've begotten you. And he also says in another place, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplication with vehement cries and tears to him, who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him, called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. How did he get there? God chose him. Is it at least possible that God chose John but man's will trump that. It's possible. Now here's the thing. That doesn't get us out of the old covenant into the new. You see, God doesn't just come and be like, okay, we're done with that one now. We're this new thing. That's not how God works. But there is something that's kind of hidden in the text, if you will, that if you're just reading, you blow right by it. You don't think about it. But we're talking about when did the priesthood shift? Well, if John was the rightful high priest, it would have passed at the moment that he baptized Jesus. Now look at Luke chapter 16 verse 14. It says, now the Pharisees who were lovers of money also heard all these things and they derided him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your heart. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is pressing into it. Why did he say until John? My take is that was the switching of the priesthood. It was right then and there. And it's been right in front of us the entire time. You see, it's so crucial that if you're going to appreciate the new covenant, besides the fact you don't have to make all these crazy sacrifices and do all this stuff and never touch a dead thing and all that. You have a baby, you go sacrifice a bird. You know, all that kind of stuff. If you really want to appreciate the covenant we're in, you have to understand the covenant that was before it. You see, it is the foundation that the new is put upon. It's so crucial when we get this. This Melchizedek thing is a game changer because only God could put who he wanted in there. You guys with me so far? I know I talk fast. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, as we are diligent to study it. 
that you will reveal its truths to us. That you have laid everything out in advance for our benefit, Lord. That all things are there for us, Lord. And I thank you that as we walk in a fuller understanding of this covenant, this guarantee, these promises, these rights that you have given us, that we will walk in more boldness to do the work that you've called us to do. Lord, I thank you for everything that you've done and continue to do in our lives. Lord, I thank you that we are performing in this life for you. That we are your hands and feet. We are your mouth, Lord, and that everywhere we go, we have words of compassion and hands that heal. And Father, I thank you that you are just putting inside of us a burning desire to reach those who are out of fellowship with you, out of covenant with you, and show them the truth of your way, Lord. We give you the glories. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Well, don't forget we got a meal right after and we're going to decorate for Christmas. But God bless you guys and we'll see you soon.